0: Hi, my name is Bob Brooks, host and moderator of Long in the Tooth. This is a podcast primarily for late career dentists who are interested in doing a great job with their practices currently and also in planning for a transition of their practices to new ownership in the future. Our vision for the podcast is to be an educational format, not salesy at all. If you have been directed to join this podcast by a member of the dental industry in the United States, please thank them. This is going to benefit you. These are educational presentations that will hopefully help your profitability, your peace of mind, and your planning for the future as you are considering transitioning your practice to new ownership. Our next topic today with Long in the Tooth is practice evaluation and practice sale price. And we have with us Larry Chatterley, as I have shared previously. And uh, Larry, there are many practice owners that want to know what their practices are really worth and who's most qualified to evaluate their practices.
1: Well, Bob, uh, I guess the, the, the generic definition of what a practice really is worth is what a willing buyer is willing to pay for it but that's not going to tell your audience here much about what their practice is worth. But um, the evaluation of practice, at least from what we've seen over the years, is based on the what we call the capitalization earnings formula, which essentially says in this formula, how much uh, excess earnings will this practice spin off? And that excess earnings is Determine what the person is willing to pay for that practice. What that tra- what that translated means is, can I afford to buy this practice, take home a reasonable income, relative to my skill set in the industry, and have the ability to service the debt? Um, and that really dr- drives to the bottom line when, when it comes to excess earnings, because that amount of money in Major and I guess most in part determines what that value of that practice would be, and uh, so for someone to really nail down a concrete number, it's probably best they get a qualified person to give them that number and evaluate their practice, and uh, particularly a person that's familiar with the with the markets that you're in, and uh, with that they can give you a pretty good idea of uh, what the value of yeah, that practice is. But um, I should also make note that some people who evaluate practices will have a number pretty significantly higher than the market. Sometimes I think they do that to appease the potential seller to sign a listing agreement. Uh, but that's not, um, but that valuation is not indicative of what can can be really uh, sold for in the market. So, I would say whoever they end up hiring uh, should have a good handle for not only evaluation but also whatever values they come up with. They get it. That's what the price they'll see that they're getting in the marketplace.
0: Good. Well, I think uh, sometimes the high prices that uh, some uh, in the practice brokerage business use, like you said. Larry used those as a hook to try to land the listings. And uh, of course, they don't sell at that price. And eventually, uh, you know, the excuse is made as to why the price needs to be lowered and so on and so forth. And many times the the best prospects are gone through initially. So once, uh, you know, the the best prospects for that practice have already taken a pass on the practice, you know, you've already chewed through those buyers And uh, sometimes they're less interested on later down the road when a a marketplace price is assigned to it. So this is not like uh, the price is right game. You know, it's a matter of identifying the correct price, pricing it, and um, a a way to evaluate how good a job an advisor has done in establishing the most probable selling price for a practice would be to see how close practices are the selling price is to actually the, the listing price. That's correct. Well, you know, one uh, concern that many practice owners have is on the one hand, they want to get the most money for their practice, but on the other hand, they want to get the best fit. And sometimes we see the psychological and the the intangible factors being even more important to practice sellers than the money. So what's the balance between sale price and and other factors? And how can uh, practice sellers feel like they're getting a fair price for their practice and still be fair to the purchasers?
1: Getting a fair price, um, I would say, is a function of what the market will bear. Um, Also, also the seller asking themselves if they were out there, would they be willing to pay this type of price for that practice? But keep in mind that there are some parameters out there that restrict sellers from getting Sometimes more than they want, because the banks have some certain parameters, the what they call global cash flow constraints relative to the revenue that that this practice spins off, and so typically they they will only lend so much money. Anything above a certain amount, the seller may have to carry back. And even in the, those scenarios, the sell, sometimes the bank won't allow a seller, a seller carry back if the value is too high. But for the most part. I think that they get a third-party uh, practice person, broker that has done a lot of valuations and has demonstrated that they have been able to get a, a good va- uh, price for a practice and that the buyers have done well after that. That's a good indication that they probably got their practice in good hands and that they're fair with, with the buyer. Um, uh, they also keep in mind that I've had some sellers over the years Really, try to push the envelope to maximize it, and sometimes, when we look deeper into the situation, we find that their personal finances are pretty poor, and so it makes it difficult essentially the buyer they're putting the buyer in an awkward position because because of poor planning on the seller's part, they're trying to figure out how to extract more money from the buyer. And that value, and that value, is higher than what the marketplace would command. So, in some cases, um, or in many cases, the sellers are not able to get uh, excess premium, if you will, on a practice because the marketplace doesn't, won't demand, or I should say, the marketplace is a uh, is it a place where they can't get that type of value compare in comparing of what other practices sell for?
0: Okay. Well, now. You know, this uh, question kind of has relate relates back to some things we've addressed in previous podcast, and that is about uh, you know the number of operatories, the desirability of the practice, the location of the practice, if it's in a rural city or a small community, and so um, all those things are related to uh, the the practice sale price and the listing price. I've identified over 120 factors, uh, variable factors that affect practice value and it's it's hard to uh uh, you know put a number on all those items and so i feel like it you know for a dental uh, practice broker or advisors who are assisting practice uh, sellers their number one responsibility is to build a market for the practice in other words identify as many good potential buyers as possible and if there are a significant number of good potential buyers then that obviously increases the opportunity that there's going to be a good fit and that the, the most money can be obtained in the sale price that is fair to both parties. Correct. So uh, let's talk about seller financing a little bit. Uh, it's been my experience that seller financing is mostly needed when we've been selling you know, at or above the market price. And fortunately, our company's had a little success with that lately, and so we've been getting into a little bit more seller financing. Uh, When should a practice owner expect to receive all cash and uh, what considerations should exist if they are going to finance a portion of the
1: sale? Good point. Well, When I started back in the 80s, almost 95% of all practice sales were seller finance because banks were not even lending any money. That didn't come about until the later 90s, probably 96, 97, 98, banks started looking at financing goodwill. And so... With that in mind, the ones that we did, I don't know how many, seller financing, I think we only had one one or two defaults out of the first two, 300 transitions we did. So the, I just thought it clear that, that the default rate's pretty low as a general rule. And that's why the banks got into the business to begin with, because then they realized statistically there was a very low default rate. And I think nationally, the default rate with bank loans is probably runs around 1%. Now, that translates probably in a low default if the seller decides to carry back a portion of it. During the COVID situation, I understand, there were more practices, more banks were requiring some type of seller carry back. The banks feel a little more comfortable if they're skin in the game by the seller versus cashing them all out. And that that's a function sometimes of how large the practice is. If the valuation gets close to the million-dollar range or higher, Typically the banks want some type of seller carry back. Um, they they don't want to take all the risk at that point. So usually it's around the million. Has that changed? I'm not sure that's changed much, but uh the higher valuations that we've seen that. And then we on the flip side, we've seen sellers who frankly didn't want all that cash up front for a tax deferral basis. So we've seen them carry back two or three hundred thousand dollars or more out of the price tag because they didn't want a big lump sum in one year. So I, we've seen that happen where the bank financed part of it and the seller financed maybe the other portion of it. That could be ha- up to as high as half. And then on rare occasions, we've seen where the seller carried all of it. But that typically we don't see that very often. Sometimes to relatives or close friends, they'll do that. <clears throat> but anyway, they, they like getting a little return on their money at the bank rate versus sticking in a CD at 1% or 2% or whatever. Actually, it's probably closer to 1%. But So, it it represents the deferred cash flow tax-wise and gives them a little bit of interest on their money. But the default rate's not very high. But the seller needs to keep in mind when they do this, though, that their note is in an unsecured position. The bank has first lien on the practice, which means that chattel assets are the hard assets. So, uh, that means that the seller, his only collateral is probably tied to this, to the goodwill of the practice essentially. And, you know, and the buyers promise to pay on a piece of paper. So that makes some sellers uncomfortable. And so sometimes they don't want to deal with a, a dealing with that if there is a problem. And so I, a lot of the sellers want to be just cashed out. But here again, it depends on the dynamics. If real estate's involved in the equation, that also can mean that uh, sellers will carry back. I would say we have a lot more sellers willing to carry back a mortgage on the real estate, particularly if they're in a first lien position. And so and that represents a nice return on their money over time. Sometimes they'll do a 20-year or 25-year amortization with a 10-year balloon, meaning eventually they get cashed out. And uh, and in those cases, we'll see more seller financing when there's real estate. If it's a combination um uh, loan with real estate and the practice sometimes the banks want the seller to carry back particularly if the buyer doesn't have the money to put down on the real estate um to qualify for an SBA loan they they'll ask the seller to carry a portion maybe 10 maybe 10% or more of that of the of the note on the real estate back in lieu of the down payment for the buyer so another structure on the real estate is they buy the practice for cash the seller leases it with an option to buy. And then usually after two three years, the buyer's had accumulated some money for the down payment to qualify to get a loan on the building. And we've seen that done as well. Mm-hmm. What
0: are some terms that uh, are in seller financing? Are the terms in seller finance notes always the same as the lender notes?
1: Sometimes. <clears throat> uh, we've had occasions where the seller may get a little bit higher just because his risk position is a little different, particularly if he's in a second position on the practice and or the building. And so um, sometimes that rate could be a little bit higher than what the commercial market rate is. Uh, I've also seen sellers where they've had the rates um, to a point where um, the buyer, frankly, can go out and get financing for less and will cash the seller out and i've had some some sellers didn't want to be cashed out so we had to turn on say well then match the rate what the buyer can get at the bank if you don't want to be cashed out so um we don't ever see any prepayment penalties in seller carrybacks we've been asked about that but that's really not fair to the buyer so all the carrybacks by the seller there's no prepayment penalty that means the buyer can come in and cash them out at any time
0: mm-hmm. our, our recent experience has been that the lenders require a co-temporaneous uh no meaning it has to be for the same period of time. So whether that's 10 years, 120 months, 12 years, 144, it has to be for the same length, but they have generally been receptive to having different terms. So say the uh, uh, buyer could be required to uh, request uh, financing from the, the bank you know once every year and they, uh, they can agree to different interest rates. So perhaps after two years, the interest rate gets bumped up a couple percent to encourage the the borrower, the practice purchaser, to go ahead and uh, get alternative financing to buy out the the seller's portion of the note.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think that but the reason the bank wants that the term to be the same is they don't want to create a, cra- a cash constraint where the buyer the seller's note is being paid off at a faster period, and they feel that may in the progress of the or potentially create a problem for the buyer paying off the banknote in a timely fashion so I think that's why they tie that to the same so
0: well our next question is we've already partially addressed it how will the purchaser finance the acquisition we've been telling about seller financing do you have some thoughts you'd like to share about uh, interacting with uh, uh, dental practice lenders
1: yeah there are some key things um, From a seller standpoint, Um, we find that having clean financials really helps um, getting the loan approved faster and quicker. So maybe this is a sidebar. The problem we've seen over the years is some doctors kind of push the bottom line where they write off some, some expenses. They may be tax deductible, but they're not necessarily directly related to the operation of the practice. And those, we call those discretionary expenses. And the higher those discretionary expenses are, the more leery the underwriter for the bank becomes because the trust level drops a little bit because they're saying, wow, this is sure a lot of deductions on this practice. So uh, we were talking earlier on another session about how to prepare your practice. I would say the cleaner the financials, the better the the practice will present not only with the buyer and their their advisors, but also with the bank, and um, and that also includes uh, clean profit loss statements or income statements uh, that uh, the practice generates. And so, it's important that those financials and the tax returns are done in a way that fosters a higher level of confidence with the underwriter, which actually helps with the whole overall process In fact we've had some pushback. if there's a lot of question marks in their practice valuation, the sellers sometimes end up getting less for their practice.
0: Mm-hmm. It seems to me that uh, it's valuable to ask a lot of questions and provide the sellers answers to those questions on those seller discretionary earnings items where there have been some things expensed off that are a little bit iffy. Uh, you know it could be all the kids have cell phones it could be thirty thousand is going to mom. Could be uh, the practice being been paying the home electric bill for as long as they can remember, and all these types of things. So uh, the last question on this segment about practice valuation and practice sale prices: What if I am asked to subordinate my seller note to the bank? And I guess we kind of already addressed this. Uh, that pretty much is what has to happen, isn't it, Larry?
1: Yeah. It, uh, it does, depending on here again, the, the, the valuation or the va- what the price selling price is and, uh, and the terms of that. It, part of it um, can be um, because we, talk, we just talked about clean financial statements. I've had banks require seller carrybacks because they were not comfortable with financial statements that were presented. Um, sometimes uh, if the seller works back Sometimes the bank's not comfortable taking the whole risk uh, because the cash flow could be tight if the seller's still working in the practice and they, they want skin in the game to make sure that the, the buyer does well. So there could be two or three factors that that could change. And we also mentioned the size of the, of the practice loan. Usually a very large practice loan, most of the banks will require a seller carry back.
0: Well, Larry, this ends this segment for Practice Evaluation and Practice Sale Price. Thanks for joining us today. And if um, any, uh, any dentist in the uh, area served by the company that you uh, were affiliated with for many years before your retirement, CTC Associates has an interest in uh, communicating with your team. Uh, could you share with us again the states that CTC Associates uh,
1: encompasses? Colorado, New Mexico, um, Utah, Idaho, and sometimes we'll the t- the states contiguous to those states will sometimes uh, consult with them there too. Okay,
0: very good. Well, Larry, thanks so much for joining us again today, and this concludes this session of Long and the Tooth. Thank you.